Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary audio series about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they've come to be the way they are today. I'm Richard Moss and this is episode 30, The Dragon Speech and Chris Crawford's Improbable Dream. Chris Crawford didn't always have a dream, and he wasn't always tormented by a menacing dragon that he could not defeat. Was it so very long ago when I knew the dragon? That was in 1975, when I first encountered the concept of a computer game. That was a new concept to me. For me, the computer had always been tool for scientific calculation. Now, the notion of using it to play, well, that was a fascinating and utterly unconventional concept to me. And so I decided to begin to acquaint myself with this technology. I had no dream as yet. For me, the dragon still slept. He was a teacher at the time, parlaying his knowledge of physics to students at a small community college in Nebraska and he'd just met a man who was attempting to program a computerized version of a board game, a strategy war game called Blitzkrieg. Intrigued, he started to ponder the problem, and before long he made his own computer game, a turn-based tactical war game he called War G1. You played against a computer-controlled opponent with help from a physical board and some pieces from an Avalon Hill board game. You'd make your moves on the board and then input them into the computer, and in return, it would print out coordinates for its own moves. That game would eventually become a commercial program called Tanktics. He left his teaching job to join Atari in 1979. He was eager to become a part of this exciting video game revolution. And at Atari, he briefly learnt the basics of programming for the video computer system, or the Atari 2600 as we know it today, before he shifted over to the group that really excited him. The group focused on developing games for the Atari 800 home computer, which at the time had the finest graphics and sound capabilities of any home computer on the market. The 800 was so far ahead of everything else, it was the machine to learn on, and I knew nothing about graphics and sound. So I hurled myself into the machine, absorbing everything I could, learning all about graphics and sound. Some of you may find it ironic to learn that for a time there, I was known as the graphics wizard of Atari. <laughs> and indeed, there was a period of time there where my game, Eastern Front, was the most graphically advanced product on the marketplace. Because that was a phase I needed to go through. I needed to understand graphics. I needed to feel that I had a good grip on it. And so all through this period, 1975 to 1981, for six years, I was apprenticing myself to this technology. I was turning it over and over in my hands. I was getting the feel of it in my fingertips. And for six years, I had no dream at all. All I did was learn. By 1981, I felt that I understood the technology. I felt that I knew what this medium was about, but I had no dream. I, could, I couldn't see the dragon, but by 1981, I could hear him thrashing about in the forest. I knew he was out there somewhere. I knew he was big, whatever he was, and I wanted to find him. And then, in one of those 
fortuitous circumstances that is so perfectly timed that we can only ascribe it, its event, its occurrence to the, the workings of fate. Then Alan Kay came into my life. And here, in 1981, this is where our story starts. That name, Alan Kay, it may sound familiar to you. He's one of the fathers of the personal computer and of a concept called the Diner Book, which eventually manifested in the form of the iPad. And in 1981, Alan Kay became Atari's chief scientist. He was hired to form a corporate research group that would push the boundaries of what's possible with video games. And Chris was asked to join that group, to apprentice himself to this great master of technology, whose mind races decades ahead and who could see and describe revolutions coming 20, 30, 50 years before they'd actually hit us. Alan Kay had a massive influence on Chris, and he taught Chris myriad lessons. But Chris recalls one lesson that stood out above all else. <laughs> the, I'd say the most important one was to uh, dream big or aim high. Uh, one of his con- most useful adages was, if you don't fail at least 90% of the time, you're not aiming high enough. Another way of viewing dreaming is to think in terms of alternate realities. There is, of course, reality, the real reality. But when we fantasize, we create an imaginary, a desired universe but we don't care about whether the universe works, whether it's possible. Only when we dream do we create a universe that is actually possible. A dream universe is a desirable universe that is possible. When Alan Kay taught Chris to dream, and dream big, Chris did exactly that. He dreamed of what games might become, of what games could be. And at first, his dream was imprecise, unclear. But as he thought upon it more, and as he wrote his first book, The Art of Computer Game Design, slowly it solidified in his mind. And by 1983, I had my dream. I could see the dragon clearly in my mind's eye. Let me tell you about my dream. I dreamed of the day when computer games would be a viable medium of artistic expression, an art form. I dreamed of computer games encompassing the broad range of human experience and emotion. Computer games about tragedy or self-sacrifice. Games about duty and honor, patriotism, satirical games about politics, or games about human folly, games about Man's relationship to God or to nature, games about the passionate love between a boy and a girl, or the serene and mature love between husband and wife of decades, games about family relationships or, or, or death, mortality, a boy becoming a man or a man realizing he is no longer young, games about a man facing truth at high noon on a dusty main street, or a boy and his dog, or a prostitute with a heart of gold. All of these things and more were part of this dream, but by themselves they amounted to nothing because all of these things have already been done by other art forms. There's no advantage, no purchase, no nothing superior about this dream. It's just an old rehash. 
all we are doing with the computer, if, if, if all we do is just reinvent the wheel with poor grade materials, well, we don't have a dream worth pursuing. The critical piece of Chris's dream, the part that made it so important to him, that elevated it above the idea of games as an imitation of other art forms, to become a true art form all of their own, that was interactivity. Games are interactive. They tap into a need to learn through play that's hardwired into our very being. And Chris wanted all those things he dreamed of to be presented in a deeply interactive way, in a playful way, in a way that was unique only to video games. So he began to work on turning his dream to reality. So this work involved an attempt to lead by example, to make games about social interaction, games about geopolitics. And it's worth noting that his one game there, the so-called Unwar game, Balance of Power, was a very, very big seller, a quarter of a million copies, at a time when you had a hit at 50,000 copies. It involved making games about things that matter. But it also involved trying to facilitate high-level discussion about games as an emerging art form. And he did this part by contributing the occasional essay or letter to Computer Gaming World, a magazine that positioned itself as an unofficial journal of computer games. And he did it by creating his own publication, the Journal of Computer Game Design, a publication he himself edited for its 150 or so subscribers, containing essays from his peers about the theory and practice of designing games. And most importantly, he did this by founding the still-running Computer Game Developers Conference, CGDC for short, or GDC as it's known today. He literally said, hey, why don't we... We, we're not going to get anywhere unless we have a community. Why don't we do a community, even though he'd been fine being a, um, you know, kind of a mountain man uh, loner. Just, you know, that's that's more who he is. But he said, no, no, we need to make changes. We need to change how people think about this medium. And the only way to make those changes is to get together. This is Gordon Walton, an industry veteran who today is known for his work on MMOs, but back then ran a company called Digital Illusions. They specialised in porting games from one platform to another. He was one of 26 people in the room at that first CGDC, which took place in Chris's house in 1987. Chris is a guy who's always looking over the horizon, and he's not trying to, you know, he's a, he's a world changer, right? He wants to change the world uh, and change, you know, the way people think about things. Uh, and so that's always been his driver. His driver is how do we look underneath the surface and figure out how to really make change, not, you know, kind of make change. But CGDC wasn't changing much. It was amazing for fostering a sense of community in the games industry. And it did help the industry to advance by enabling conversations between people working on different genres and platforms and in different parts of the world. But as the conference grew bigger and more successful, it also began to drift further and further away from Chris's primary goal. Well, its evolution was natural, and I, I expected this direction of evolution. 
I wasn't surprised by it at all, but I was hoping to get in some uh, <laughs> some consideration for art in that, and uh, I, I failed. Uh, I knew that the as the industry was growing, it would become more commercial, more focused on uh, quick profits, but I thought that some of the wiser heads in the industry would be looking further down the road. And I was wrong. Uh, I mean, people were thinking exclusively in terms of, you know, next quarter. Year after year, his discontent grew. He saw marketing efforts focused on the tried and true, preaching to the converted and settling on a narrow range of established game genres rather than attempting to expand the gaming audience with new genres. Meanwhile, the idea that games must be fun, not just compelling or entertaining or engaging, but specifically fun, that idea seemed to be spreading like a virus. A virus that would not have an antidote until the serious games movement emerged at the turn of the century. And at the same time, in an amplifying effect, Game development budgets climbed ever higher, distorting the economics so that publishers became averse to taking risks on new or different concepts. It was the beginning of what we now call AAA games publishing, where the most successful games are often, though certainly not always, the best presented, highest funded, and most widely marketed ones, but often also the least innovative getting by on their beautiful graphics, their polished sound, and brilliant executions of whatever themes and mechanics are in trend at the time. And Chris hated it. He saw such games as the antithesis of what games should be. Expensive and expansive, but creatively shallow. The beginnings of an obsession with mimicking Hollywood rather than forging a new path unique to games. The biggest problem we face here is the lack of people in our games. Have you ever noticed computer games, or all of our games are about things, not people. We shoot things. We chase things. Things shoot us. Things chase us. We manipulate things, maneuver things, allocate things, manage things, but it's always things, things, things. There are never any people in any of our games. No, sure, I've, I've seen the pitiful excuses for characters in our games, and they're fakes. They are Potemkin villages. The, the characters in our games are like a cardboard box with a, with a picture of a face pasted onto the front, but nothing inside. There's no heart and soul in them. All they have are a couple of buttons on front. You push one button, and he says, I am your friend now. And you push the other button and he says, I am your enemy now. With Balance of Power, Chris had shown an alternate path. A path to the enlightened game design of his dream. Where compelling interactive experiences yield meaningful insights about the human condition. Where causing a nuclear war triggered a static black screen with the stark white lettering we do not reward failure. And with his subsequent games, Trust and Betrayal, The Legacy of Seaboot in 1987, then The Global Dilemma, Guns or Butter in 1990, 
and Balance of the Planet later that same year. With these, he tried to further forge a more serious path, where he explores relationships and environmental policy in a deeply interactive format. But these games were not successful like Balance of Power. They were not successful at all in commercial terms. Chris was trying to lead a revolution, but nobody seemed to be signing up to the cause. And worse, he was finding his new games criticised for being boring. These games he felt so proud of for their artistic merits were being framed through the lens of fun and found wanting. Perhaps the, uh, I think the, the overall reaction of the industry was best summarised in a review of the game written by some fellow at uh, Computer Gaming World. Let me just read you a few. <laughs> he said, regarding Balance of the Planet, it is the closest thing to art to be sold as computer entertainment. But it's just not fun. Therefore, if the game is not fun, it simply wouldn't be right to endorse it. Your explicit rejection of my dream cannot be imagined. Here, here they are saying, yes, it's art, but it's not fun. Therefore, I'm sorry, Mr. Shakespeare, your play, Macbeth. Oh, boy, it kept me up with nightmares for three nights, but gosh, well, it's just not fun. I mean, can't we get a few belly laughs in there? Maybe we can have Macbeth tell a few mother-in-law jokes to his wife. Yeah. And you, Mr. Beethoven, your Ninth Symphony, oh, it makes my heart soar in awe at the majesty of the cosmos. But you know, it's just not fun. The words stung him. Not fun. It's art, but it's boring. He'd given the games industry what he thought was his best work, and they'd rejected it outright. There was only one explanation that made sense to him. I am at cross-purposes with my audience, and there's only one conclusion I can draw. I have to leave. I don't fit in here anymore. He would announce his departure at the conference he created at CGDC 1993 in an opening day lecture he called I Had a Dream, but which we now know as the Dragon Speech. You've been hearing clips from it all through this story. It was a fitting way to lay out his dream, as Chris was an accomplished public speaker, a master orator. He could hold his audience in a trance, captivating them as he bounced around the room, acting out his words as he speaks them. His former Computer Gaming World editor, Johnny Wilson, who did not write that Balance of the Planet review, by the way, that was one of his freelancers. Here's Johnny talking about Chris. You know, um, Chris is eccentric, but he's, but he's passionate. And part of that eccentricity is um, an ability to uh, have a large funnel and take in a whole lot of stuff and, uh, and filter it and come out with something fascinating that you wouldn't expect. You know, for example, you know, uh, at that first, uh, no, it was the second Computer Game Developers Conference, uh, he, uh, you know, comes in with this bullwhip and he's talking about creativity 
and he's you know you constantly using this this bullwhip as his as his illustration. We noticed that whenever Chris did formal public speaking, he invariably had props. You know, it might have been a bullwhip, it might have been a ridiculous hat, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever it was, he always had props. And that's the way he could really keep people's attention. Good speaking, there are a million little details that, that add to it, the way you use your voice, the way you move around on the stage. In fact, I did a, a great trick with that in the Dragon Speech, where I started at one side of the room and I, I showed a development process, an evolutionary process. And then I stopped at the end and said, wait a minute, wasn't it somewhere? And I walked back and said, right about here, that blah, blah, blah. That was a cute stunt on that idea, but uh, moving around, mapping ideas to spatial positions is, is a good way to help people understand. And with the Dragon Speech, a lecture he poured himself into mind, body and soul for weeks upon weeks of preparation, more than any speech Chris has given before or since. It was absolutely critical that people understand. Not why they should follow him. He didn't really care if they did or not. But rather why he needed to leave. Why this man who had created the Game Developers Conference, this man who had been a professional games developer almost as long as the profession had existed, why this man, one of the greatest Champions of the medium, the first games evangelist, and the first author of a book about game design. Why he, Chris Crawford, had to leave. I can hear you saying, Chris, this is crazy. I mean, you don't want to leave all this behind. You've got too much invested here. This is insanity. And you know, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. But let me tell you about another crazy old fool. Let me tell you about a guy by the name of Don Quixote de la Mancha. Don Quixote, the literary character who fought windmills thinking they were giants. The man who saw castles where others saw a flock of sheep. The man who believed in an ideal world of dignity and honour and truth. And who refused to accept the ugly, dishonourable reality set before him. Chris saw himself in Don Quixote, and he knew that the time had come to pursue his greater truth. And so he looked upon his dragon, and he proclaimed defiantly, Do you have to laugh at me that way? Am I, am I so pitiful that, that you can sneer in my face like that? Yes, yes, you frighten me. You hurt me. I felt your claws ripping through my soul. But I'm going to die someday, and before I can do that, I've got to face you eyeball to eyeball. I've got to look you right in the eye and see what's inside. But I'm not good enough to do that yet. I'm not experienced enough. So I'm going to have to start learning today, here, now. And he drew his sword, a sword he had hidden upon the stage behind him, and he charged from the room, charging to his likely death, as he charged out of the games industry. For beauty! For 
Johnny Wilson had the unenviable task of relating the dragon speech to the readers of Computer Gaming World. At the time, he wrote that it felt like a valedictorian speech, bittersweet and idealistic, yet tinged with an overarching sadness. But looking back on it now, he describes it in plainer terms. I I felt like he was at a transitional point in his life, and I remember it being a very emotional time, and it was almost like <laughs> it was almost like he was giving his eulogy uh, in in some sense uh, there at at the conference. For Chris's friend and one-time producer Don Daglo, who had overseen Chris's 1986 strategy war game Patton versus Rommel, there's an air of pain to the memory. The uh, God, I'm trying to figure something that's a worthwhile. See, because what I keep coming back to is how we lost him after that. When he went down the rabbit hole on the storytelling system. That was the nature of Chris's Odyssey. A quest for the secrets of interactive storytelling that would elevate games beyond the level of all the storytelling mediums that came before. He called it Storytron. Then when the first version proved too complicated for us non-physicists to manipulate. Such was its immensity of verbs and systems of interaction. He built a new version called Erasmatron. And then he kept trying when that didn't work either. And now, more than 27 years on from his famous speech, Chris has yet to slay his dragon. Or to gain a critical mass of storytellers working with any of the technologies he's created in its pursuit. Now, when you left the industry, you thought this interactive storytelling thing would take you a year or two to achieve. Yeah, yes. <laughs> How do you look back on that folly now? The fundamental problem was I had no idea of how complex storytelling is. I've done an enormous amount of research for it, and uh, and the more I've studied it, the more amazed I am at the ability of the mind to comprehend a story. Uh, Stories are very complex data structures, and the way they operate, uh, and the fact that a five-year-old can understand a story is amazing. Uh, So uh, there is nothing in computerdom that remotely approaches understanding stories. Uh, And I don't think we will have anything uh, capable of doing that for many years. Which brings us back to Don Daglow and Johnny Wilson talking about how they felt like we lost Chris, who retired to the wilderness of 40 acres of forest land that he bought in Oregon around 1996. Not long after, he was maneuvered off the board of GDC during its sale to a big conference-running corporation. And so publishers were not giving him the respect that they had given him earlier. He felt kicked off the, the previous board of the, of the GDC after he had founded it, after it was his baby. I was privy to some of that politics, but uh, it, was, it was not a pleasant uh, experience. I can see why he would have been devastated. But I think if he had hung around, that he probably would have ended up 
leading a new generation of, of game designers and, uh, and challenging them to broaden their horizons. At the same time, though, as Gordon Walton points out, as hard as it is to push a revolution in people's thinking about games, it may be even harder to incrementalize your way there. And I think that's always been the challenge with what he's working on, is it hasn't hit the threshold of where it could get the adoption, you know, to give it more momentum, to get it kind of get over the hump and, and, and create something new. So much of what Chris espouses about interactive storytelling sounds like the preachings of a new religion. So I think it's fitting that Gordon frames the dragon speech as akin to a rally against the church teachings. You know, think about it. This is something he created, a conference he created. And I'm saying, I'm rejecting the path that we're on and I'm going on a different path. So, of course, it was going to be controversial and it was going to be remembered because it was like, wow, you're, you're, you know, you've gone from being the high priest to an apostate. <laughs> you know, in, in one fell swoop, in one in one speech. But you know, it, it was it was a rejection of the path that we were on. Saying, "I, yeah, I, I." He didn't say your path is a terrible path. What he said is that path is not interesting to me because it's not going to get the medium to where I believe it should go. So, and that was, you know, he was he was being an apostate in a, in the church, right? He was he was like. He should be excommunicated, so he excommunicated himself. And I know that when I first started covering computer games, my feeling was that we were revolutionizing things. We were coming up with something that would have, you know, educational power, and it does. It would have um, acculturating power, and it does. But it also has some demons with it, too. But we felt like we were at the, you know, at the cutting edge. We felt like we were doing something revolutionary and something important. But with the dragon speech, basically he was saying, are you? Are you really doing something important? Are you really trying to stretch yourself? Are you really going for all you can get? Are we really getting the most out of this medium? Are we building something that can be built upon in the future? The Dragon Speech has gone down in games industry lore as one of those defining canonical moments where paths diverged. Every year, hundreds of new people discover it on YouTube and ponder the deeper meanings of Chris Crawford's manifesto. And every year, it still plays as oddly prescient, a harsh reality check on the artistic progress of a medium still obsessed with rehashing the old with scant little effort spent on inventing the new, even as the indie movement grows bigger and bolder and braver. And at the same time, it's also an alluring vision of things to come, an aspirational call to arms for the defining entertainment medium of our time, for an ecosystem of games that captures the full breadth and depth of the human condition, that transcends the screens we play them on, the Dragon Speech, at least for now, is Chris's greatest legacy on the medium. But still, I had to ask him, would you have chased this dragon had you known that three decades later you would still be uh, trying to slay it? I don't know. Um, probably not. 
probably I would have devoted my time more to uh, educational simulation stuff. Um, because then I would have had a stream of, uh, of output. I mean, I was very good at that stuff. I did a whole bunch of those. And I just got better and better at it. And maybe I should have stuck with that. That would at least given people ideas, better ideas about process intensity and uh, uh, designing around the processes rather than the images. So what are we to make of the dragon speech? And of Chris's chaotic, still-failing quest? Not to mention the man himself who at 70 years old has now dedicated more than half his life to the pursuit of his dream. Chris can come off as abrasive, as overly dismissive of the achievements of those who share similar goals to his own, and too sure of the superiority of his own approach, or too willing to speak of statistical generalities, like sex differences in various social and cognitive areas, as though they were universal traits and not just points on a bell curve. But to see Chris as out of touch, or a relic of a bygone era, or, or as a willing victim of his own character flaws, or any of the, the, the much meaner things people have said about him over the years, to see him in those ways is to miss the point entirely. Here is a thoughtful, intelligent man who defied all reason to pursue a dream he felt worth pursuing whose life's work has been about making something bigger than himself. On the one hand, as a caretaker of the land he lives on, where he manages that forest and he's built machines and structures that will survive for years after he's gone. And on the other hand, as a prophet of the revolution in storytelling that he's certain will one day arrive. In Chris, we don't see tragedy, however easy it is to frame his decades of failure as such. His life is not the cautionary tale of hubris, in the pursuit of an ideal. No. I think in Chris we have the story of a man dedicated, at all costs, to the pursuit of a dream he knows is much bigger than himself. A dream that will likely defeat him. But who pursues it all the same, because this dream is his great truth. And I think there's something beautiful in that. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with support from my 30 patrons. And a special shout-out to producer-level backers Scott Grant, Kerry Clanton, Wade Trigaskis, Simon Moss, Seth Robinson, Vivek Mohan, and Rob Eberhardt. Thank you guys for your support this year. I'm doing some experiments with advertising and sponsorship at the moment, but regardless of whether they become a permanent part of the show, the reality is that a podcast like this one can only succeed with direct support from people like them and people like you. And you can help me keep this thing going by doing any of a few different things. So the easiest one is just to share it, tell people why they should be listening, link them to your favorite episodes, 
post it on your preferred social news and networking channels. More listeners helps on the advertising and sponsorship front, but I also see more listeners as more potential supporters of the show. And on that note, if you'd like to become one of my supporters, you can send a one-off donation by PayPal at paypal.me slash mossrc, or you can subscribe via Patreon at patreon.com slash life and times of video games. That's going to be monthly payments with set reward tiers ranging from $1 all the way up to 30 in exchange for good vibes, behind-the-scenes updates and research notes, ad-free episodes, some other stuff. It depends on the tier. My Patreon support has grown considerably this year. It's up 13 people from this time a year ago, an increase that has brought with it roughly a doubling of my podcast income. And I've been able to use that money to make more upgrades to my gear, as well as to find more time to do ambitious multi-interview stories like this one. And this is still just what I can do with the show as a side hustle. So imagine how great this thing could be if I can turn it into a proper part-time or a full-time job. So again, to support me, that's paypal.me slash for one-off donations or patreon.com slash life and times of video games for monthly support. And you can always hit me up on email at richard at lifeandtimes.games or Twitter at mossrc. I'll have a couple of bonus things out before the end of the year. Then I'll be back with the season finale in early January. Until then, I hope you're all having a great December. It's a fine month for dreaming of a better world ahead. My name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. Thank you for listening. I'll see ya.